The winemakers are up next, but first, check out this other great show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Destination Eat Drink. I'm Brent Peterson. Each week on the podcast, we visit a different foodie city and explore the cuisine that makes that place special, whether it be custard tarts in Lisbon, mango beer in Mumbai, or lizard curry in Guatemala. Download Destination Eat Drink today on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. That was a good one. Gotta for say, us, for us sitting here watching, that was like delayed suspense, waiting for <laughs> waiting for, know, for the, the waiting for the sound of a heavy, expensive bo- glass bottle, a, a carbon footprint sin pouring out rosé, <laughs> frivolous rosé into a fancy. So that's German what it glass. was. Is that it? Just took you that long to pick it up? And yeah, turn it, it, it over. It's a little more of a wrist workout to to turn the turn the. And bottle. then the other thing is, you thought that the bottle was full because it was so heavy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. There was. Just I mean, enough yeah. for the poor. But you nailed the poor, Sam. So Nailed the poor. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Winemakers. I'm John Meyer sitting here with Bart Hansen today and Brian Casey. And Hey, welcome back from vacation, man. Good to see you. Ah, thank you, sir. I spent a little time at it. And? Uh, the beach. Sorry. Oh, I thought, nice. I thought you were giving me a little time to talk. Oh, you can, sure <laughs> can. <laughs> beach talk. Uh, you went on vacation. We didn't. You, you don't get any extra time. <laughs> and Sam Katuri, of course. And Tony Biaggi. Hello. Correct. How are you guys doing today? Good so, deal. So, Tony, I, I we had a listener and who's also a winemaker, and he was wondering if you could talk about how your company started the trucking company. Well, you know, uh, you <laughs> know, really, what made us rich, the trucking company, was Budweiser and Behringer. Um, no, in truth, that was the truth. I mean, I'm, it's not my family at all. Uh, my dad was a police officer in San Mateo, but but the truth is, I, I mean, like, if what? you if you remember '90s in Napa Valley, I mean, in the '80s in Napa Valley, a truck. Be- uh, bu- uh, sorry, a Biagi truck left the Behringer factory on uh, Main Street in Pratt every eight minutes with rosé. And then with they, white Zinfandel. White Zinfandel, sorry. Every yeah, eight rosé. Right. Rose. You call it Primitivo rosé and you put it in a yeah, can and you exactly. sell it for $32 and a liter. I think they also had the Budweiser contract hauling Budweiser from, from Fairfield. From Fairfield. I think then they, what they do is they I think they go to Bakersfield with loads and then, then they would go deadhead to L.A. where the other big other Budweiser Deadhead? Then come back, yeah, so... And they come empty and come back. Right, right, that. right. So, you know, Biagi is a very successful trucking company. Yeah. So. But not, I have not but, that money. but not your family. No, no, no. Yeah, I, you I, I just wish to have have to money. work for a living. I do, I do. <laughs> Although I don't think the wine industry is. You well, to you're a right winemaker, so you don't really have to work yeah, for no, a living. No, your your dad would say that. I don't work for a living, so. That's what I'm here for. Right. And even if he was in the trucking company, he'd still be driving a truck. Yeah, exactly. I would be. I just not just not a semi. I'd just be driving a pickup truck. You know, <laughs> watching everybody else drive. All right, well, Tony, Tony I don't, uh, the listeners out there who don't know who Tony is, um, Antonio Galoni picked him as 2020 Winemaker of the Year, correct? Um, so 2020. Wine consultant um, to a lot of different wineries and also has his own label. Um, but unlike, so like when I think of wine consultants, like superstar wine consultants, I think of, like I know the big name is like Philippe Melka. Um um, but with Tony, he seems to slide in and out of these places um, and and somehow doesn't necessarily get his name out in front, but manages to somehow 
when he goes to someplace, bring the people that are already working there sort of to the forefront? It's like, I don't know. It's like a different model or something. I don't know exactly it what is. it is. Um, you know, again, I, when I, I always believe that when you get hired by the, the winery, the winery should be the first and foremost name. That's what they're hiring me to do is to make, in essence, Lassiter. You know, I sort of fill. You know, I worked. I met these guys at all at Lasseter. You know, to make a brand like that better and find the right people to do so and and so forth. So it's never. It's a team effort. It always has been to me. Um, maybe I maybe I'm looking at it wrong. Maybe I should make it all about me. But I just don't. I think it's about everybody. You know. Um, I think that just works better for me. I think in the future, if you look at Bordeaux, I kind of took the model from Bordeaux. Each first growth. When I was there once, I was at Chateau Latour tasting and touring and. I saw this guy get out of a car. He had this attache. And I'm like, oh, okay, look at that. Cool. Okay. Then I get to Mouton Rothschild. Later, the same guy gets out of the car and <laughs> oh goes, God. I'm like, that's interesting. So finally, I was able to ask, you know, Philippe Duan, the winemaker at, at Mouton Rothschild, who, you know, who is that? He goes, oh, it's our consultant. And what's I in go, that attache? And I go, well, I mean, yeah, notes. I guess a calculator, maybe, you know, I don't know. You know, so. Secret sauce. Deposit slips. But no, he said that basically every one of the first growths has a consultant. To come in and just sort of talk to them. I mean, really, what's the most important? All we know about is basically the chateau. I thought that was really interesting that you have people that sort of, you know, bounce ideas off of you and be able to do ideas. And I think everybody should use. When I even work with Craig Williams still a little bit to taste my wines and say, what am I doing? You know, what do you think? I, I really hold him in high regards and so forth. And so, I just always thought that was a very interesting thing that I saw. I mean, it's like this little guy. There he goes again. There are the little feet. There he goes again. You know. So, and it's just I think they help you see the forest for the trees sometimes. You can get. I think we, everybody here has made wine. We all know how how blinders you can get on your own wine, especially you're so close to it. You know, you don't have someone coming from the outside going, "Back off, you're doing okay," or or "Hold on." You know, I always say to my clients, the only problem I can't fix is wine down in a drain. It's the only fireable offense I tell my guys. You know, or my wine and my wine, or you know, at Hourglass where I am, the winemaker. You know, other than that, we can fix anything. So if you make a mistake, don't get angry. Let's just figure out how we're going to fix this. So. Um, you don't want mistakes. I don't think any of us do. But the reality, must, I think, you know, I know part, you know, mistakes happen. I mean, so it's, what's it's, been it's your biggest nature. challenge fixing a mistake? <laughs> really? Um, I, think, I don't think we can talk about yeah, something. No, I mean, again, again. No names. Just, uh, yeah. It's just, I think it's the idea of opening your mind to other, other ideas, you know, and just, we get so dogmatic in this business. We've had a level of success that we don't want to look at other ideas or maybe other, other ideas of what quality can be. Um, you know, look, I, I went, I grew up in the early nineties in the wine business. I worked retail. I went to Davis. I, I sold wine and, um, you know, I've seen the wine and Bart, you can say this anymore. You've seen the wine change industry change 19 times since you started. And I think that, that the reality that great wine has been made all these times. So, you know, if you think that, you know, the best sorting table is going to make better wine, it's not. I mean, they didn't have sorting tables for 82 Bordeaux, and those wines are pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I just, that's so how you look at it sort of like, you know, and then Burgundy in the 90s was pretty darn good. I mean, and they just basically went right to press. So the reality is, I think there's a lot of different ways of making great wine. Just, just think of this ideas and so forth. So. I, I, I think the biggest thing a consultant can do is, you know, for a brand – let's call it a brand that I worked for Benziger, you know, we brought in Dave Ramey to help us think things through differently. Like we'd changed the vineyard a lot, but we were still making the wine the same way. And, and he kind of forced our hand to do things different. We definitely made better wines. Yeah. I, we could say the same thing about working at Lasseter with the things yeah. that you introduced there. There were things that um, I used to scratch my head at and um, you came in, you started making changes and, and they were all good on the right way on my path or for, they were on the right path in my thinking and um but i think that's what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to you're supposed to get people to think differently than what they've been doing for the past 25 years 
That's yeah, the way that, we've well, always That's always done. hard. And I think, you know, what's what, what, again, back to dog being dogmatic in the business, I always have a hard time with thinking in the past. What did we do last year? And I think, Sam, you can identify this, and you know your dad would. Every year is different and inherent to itself. That's, that's what Mother Nature does to us. You can say this is kind of like that year, that year, but it's not. Even this year, I mean, what, look at our growing season this year. You know, right. that's that's why we put the vintage on the bottle. Right, right. I mean, I mean that's know, what it's that's what it's all and, about and is I, what you did in that year to get there, right? And I think every year is specific to itself, and I feel that. You know, I often hear this when I was a kid. I mean, as you, when I worked at Duckhorn under Tom Rinaldi, I mean, that's one thing. Say, well, well, what happened last year? Should we should be doing what we're doing last year? Whereas, I mean, I didn't have a problem. I mean, the, the brand is so successful. But then, as I started becoming my own winemaker, I said. Well, sometimes, and I was very lucky. I mean, I went to work at Plump Jack, but I worked. I mean, I was in the cellar touching, feeling every day with two people. I was I was driving the forklift. I was filling the tanks. I was, you know, now as I'm a little more hands-off, they can't, I, I have that luxury. But then I was there, and you'd, you'd see that the, the changes you would implement, you can see have effect or not have effect very quickly. And you could very quickly see, well, that didn't work at all, or, oh, F, I really made a mistake here. Let's just cover this up real quick. You know, no one will see this. I'll just come in later. You know, I'm, but I mean, the reality is, is that I was there so I could see that what would change. And what I really learned was uh, um, that not one size does not fit all for everybody. So, you know, and, and just another thing is, Tony, because you brought up about how the wine business has changed, you know. When we were coming up, I was a little before you, you know, the 200,000 case year winery was kind of a sweet spot, you know, two to 300,000. And so therefore, if you were doing 30,000 cases of Sauvignon Blanc every year, you had to make it taste like the last year's 30,000. And and wineries have changed now and there's more room to make changes and talk about the vintage more. Um, you know, l- overall lot sizes are, or you know, that, that part of the industry has kind of gone away. It's all much bigger and it's all run by the same five or six organizations. Now we're talking about all these small little wineries. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, this it, is, you know, we're, ta- so I think there's we're more talking openness. here about hand, handmade wines and Look, I mean, I, I think some of the best blenders in the world were Ed Zabraja, Craig Williams. I mean, I mean Ed Zabraja. I mean, look at the amount of wines he made and the quantity he made. I mean, you couldn't touch that. I mean, th- th- that's a that's a true, I feel, professional. It's unbelievable to me that you could craft wines at that quantity at that price. You know, not and back then in the '80s, I don't think you know, the, I don't think they were doing anything different. You know, than we were doing now. They just had a wonderful opportunity to blend, and I think that's sometimes what's lost. I, I often say, especially in California Cabernet. You know, the, the Bordelais model doesn't exist anymore. It's more the Burgundian model where everybody makes 500 cases of something. And I think that whole idea of blending and stuff is sort of being lost a little bit. I mean, I think, Bart, you can agree, too, is what else is being lost is truly having somebody who's worked from grape to bottle because these smaller wineries cannot afford a bottling line. It's just not, not cost-effective to have equipment sit year-round. So it's very great to have these, co- these companies come in and bottle for you, but I, I know a lot of people who've never worked a bottling line, don't know how to run a filter. I'm not saying that's great winemaker or not great winemaker, but it, it was when you started, when I started, you know, we had everything at Duckhorn. It was, we had our fill and filters, we had our own bottling lines, you know, we crushed our own fruit. So you had, you were fixing your equipment. I mean, you were running a bottling line and I was not very good at it, but I knew how to do, <laughs> do it. So um, I think that's kind of what sort of lost a little bit in today's yeah. market because you have, consul- you know, as a consulting winemaker, when are you really setting up a bottling line? You know, with, you know, with, with you know, tearing you, apart a, a corker. Back you, know? the, you back the truck in. Yeah, absolutely. You put it up on blocks and you 
plug your wine in, well, right? I would. And, I, I don't. Have and I think the, you know, the they're right. probably doing a better job than we would. That's the dirty secret because right. they can bottle it faster. And people will always say, "Well, faster is worse." Actually, faster is better because the, the dissolved oxygen uptake is less if you go faster. Right. If you go slower, bottles are stopping and starting on the line, which is what you're doing because no one knows how to run that equipment. The best run. Everybody knows when you owned your own bottle line, the best day was the last day. You know, then you put it away, and then you have trouble all the way after that. I mean, so. Mike Lee it used to drive him nuts when the filler would stop. Yeah. And because there's all that wine in the bowl, and so even yeah, though it's a bunch, of air on it. a bunch of air on it, you're trying to put nitrogen in it, but it's still being oxidized, you know. Yeah. Um, so, and, and, and the technology on bottlings are better now than what great. they were. No, it's fantastic. Um, and the guys who run it, like, you know, we use Ryan over at Lasseter. I use them also quite a bit in Napa Valley. They're fantastic guys, and we're very lucky to have them. But I do think something's lost, that, you know, that whole artisanal feel of, like, grape to bottle. Yeah, I mean, you know? all, for all these guys that have worked two vintages for – the past you know 10 years i mean that's great but did you ever put wine in the bottle and that's you know? you did know, you that's, actually pull it out of barrels you put it in barrels did you pull yeah, it out of barrels no and yeah and that's i think that's kind of what's lost and i and i i luckily caught the last end of that where i ran the line with duckhorn we bought we bought a mobile line that we had our own so i saw that all saw all that mark Barringer respect all the equipment i got to hear how he would make the decisions and that was always interesting to me but duckhorn was a great time because we went from a small 300 ton facility to a 1500 ton facility within five years and that brand exponentially grew when i was there and i was really excited to sort of see the good and the bad of growth you know, so so can we, in in classic winemakers podcast style, we jumped like way deep into the middle of a conversation, and you know, and yeah. even though everybody, you know, this a lot of us know, let's go from Tony Biaggi, son of Tony Biaggi, San Mateo police yeah. officer, marine biologist, marine yeah. biologist yeah. on the rise, like uh, how you got you know, what got you into wine. I often say no one knows wants to know how sausage is made. We no, just no, want to eat it. We, this is probably the one podcast that people want to know how sausage is made. We're, we're, <laughs> I mean, it's we're one of those things. Pro sausage. <laughs> pro sausage. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, I'm gonna let that one go. I'm let that one go. <laughs> yeah, let's leave. Uh, so let's leave no, that born and raised on the peninsula of San Mateo, Belmont. Um, it's funny, uh, and you know this because your dad probably told you. Um, the Bay Area is such a small place growing up, and it still is. I mean, there's 800,000 people in San Francisco. There's 8 million in Manhattan. It just tells you it's a big little city. And um, I had a great time growing up in the peninsula, fourth generation and fifth generation peninsulans, you know, mostly Petaluma first and then came down. But I, I don't know if you saw the picture that I gave your dad. Oh, my, that's right. My grandfather yeah. passed away this year, and he's 101. And I was going through his p- pictures, and I look back, and there's there's red yeah. uh, Couturi, but it was Couturi was spelled wrong, uh, not your way. Yeah, yeah, it was... What was this? There was a extra vowel. Yeah, there was, and so I called. I called Philip and said, "Hey, Philip, this is gonna be a really weird question, but I know you guys came from Cal Hollow, and so did my grandfather. Did you know Red Couture?" He goes, "What are you talking about?" This. That was my dad. So my grandfather somehow knew his grand, you know, uh, Sam's grandfather. Was it like a baseball team thing? No, it was just a hunting hunting trip. Yeah, Yeah, it was a hunting trip, and it turned out that I think your dad's best friend was a good friend of my grandfather's, but it just never crossed paths, and it was one of those. That's San Francisco. That's how small it is. Uh, two especially, Italians hanging out. Especially yeah. with the Italian man. Yeah, the Italian. Italians hanging yeah, out, totally. you know. And, and so my family moved to San Mateo. My dad went to Sarah High School. I went to Sarah High School. Um, and then a great time. I loved growing up in the peninsula. It was just different. I think the Bay Area is a little different now than it was then, even 20 years ago. And I hate saying that, but my baseball field is now where Oracle World Headquarters is. And that was Marine World as well. So uh, we would take a bus and ride in the, you know, we'd go play baseball. Then we'd have our swim trunks and go do the water slides there and then come home. So 
Um, that was that was it was idyllic. I mean, I loved growing up in the peninsula, and then uh, I got recruited to wrestle at Davis. I played all three sports at high school. I played football, baseball, and I got sucked into wrestling and I excelled at it. No, it was Wait, and, and and just yeah. sorry for a moment. Did you just because of the sports you were playing happen to get? Recruited to Davis, like not not taking wine completely out of the no, equation. No, I, I wanted to be a marine biologist, like you said. I, I my junior, that's what my goal was. I wanted to be out. I, I always knew I could never sit behind a desk. I, I couldn't do that. I mean, I can't recite the speech and say anything, but I don't want to sign. You know, I don't want to sell anything. I don't want to sell anything bought. I don't want to buy anything sold. You know, uh, there's a great speech in there. I kind of kind of identified with that speech. So marine biology is where I wanted to go, and I was going to Humboldt State. Um, my, my stepfather's from Arcata, born and raised, and I spent a lot of time up there. I loved the area. I mean, now I probably would have been really bored and really been foggy, um, you know. So, uh, but I got my my computer teacher freshman year, or, or sorry, my freshman year in high school, said to me, you know, you can go to detention for talking too much, or you can come to the wrestling team. And that's how I got into <laughs> wrestling. And I, I took second in the first tournament three days after doing it. Uh, and I excelled at it, and I got recruited to wrestle at Davis, so my plans changed. And I uh, never wrestled a day there. Uh, I was over it. <laughs> Played baseball for a year, redshirted. Knew my time on the baseball field had ended when I came back sophomore year, and this, this guy from Arizona State who was 6'2", 225, was like, I'm going to be playing catcher this year. I go, yeah, yeah, you are. You know, so <laughs> without a doubt, you are. So at that point, I, I played rugby for four years and just enjoyed Davis. I had a really good time there, so. I was very lucky. And what did you? And what, but what did you study at Davis? Well, I started with marine biology. And I took an Ann Noble class in my my freshman year, and I was sold. So uh, the Roma wheel, yeah. She's yeah. and she's also probably one of the best sensory scientists in the world. I mean, people don't understand. She trains people that work for IFF, International Flavors and Fragrances, that you know make your French fries smell more like French fries. I know it's it's weird. And, weird. And, and so it's stuff. Uh, so so she trained a lot of those people. I mean, a lot of my people I graduated with, a lot of them went to work there rather than winemaking. They took the classes, but they, that's sort of what they identified with. And, yeah. and so um, I just fell in love with it. So 92, I worked my first vintage. I worked at Dry Creek. 93, I, I came back and worked another harvest at Hess Collection. And then that's where I got hooked up with the St. Lena Wine Center to sell wine. So I worked on the weekends selling wine in the off season. Just it was an opportunity. And you know, my parents didn't you know they, we were we were back then i could say middle class and we were we lived well but it wasn't we were you know there was not a lot of money to go around to buy 100 dollars bottles of wine so my dad drank a lot of ridge zen that's what he loved ridge zinfandel so when you were at when you were at hess was that when randall johnson was yeah, yeah randall okay. johnson tom smith i think tom now runs um delicato or is it gallo i can't remember where he is now he's a big wig at gallo and there was a young lady that worked for randall stephanie putnam okay and she's yeah. the winemaker now at raymond yeah okay. so i learned a lot i mean i don't know how they managed me i think she would say we didn't manage him he's <laughs> just just tony i mean so so we we had at kenwood at the time had a winery warehouse in napa yeah and most of the barrels that were in it were were from hess that makes sense and, probably the select yeah, the yeah select wines they made a lot of that select hess select and it was right. kind of cool though i mean you know, they did all, it was really cool hands-on winemaking up there, even though for the size, they had a lot of fun grapes coming in, because not only did they work with their estate property, which is beautiful in Mount Vitor, they brought in a lot of Biennecito Chardonnay, Biennecito Pinot Noir, French Camp grapes. Now, Biennecito, of course, is the backbone for Obon Clamad and a lot of brands down on the Central Coast. Um, so, I got, I got to see a lot of those grapes. All right, so what was the first time you tried Harlan, and, and what is it about that winery that kind of... Well, held a, your attention. It's a funny story. I, I, you know, I got to know when I went to work at Duckhorn. I got to know, uh, of course, Tom Rinaldi is a legend in this business. I don't know if he's been on yet, but he will be. Another another Italian from San Francisco, SI guy. But he was so kind to me and his wife Beverly. And you know, he was my, my mentor. I mean, and SI so, guy. 
Yeah, SI guy. The SI guys won't come on my show because yeah, exactly. they know my dad was a Secret Heart guy. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah I mean, so. like, oh, he, you, oh, he's Sacred a great Heart guy. Now. He went to SI. You yeah, know, yeah, that exactly. was just you yeah, know, like that's an oxymoron. And know? then I think the so. I think the Sacred Heart people used to call it they called them SI cherries. Cherries, right? yeah, yeah, cherries. There were cherries, and then the Bellarmine was the prunes because that's where all the prune orchards were in San Jose. So, you know, and um, so yeah, so Tom was my mentor and godfather of my daughter to this day, and he was best friends with Bob Levy, so I got to know Bob Levy very well, and he'd be out a lot of dinners, and I was just in awe of the guy. I mean, the guy was always so just ahead of the curve in that time frame, I mean, and I mean, he's very we're honest. Like really, we, slacking in our oh, I usually know. when like big names get dropped on the show, Tony, we 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 ding a glass. Oh. And, I'm just fancy, catch, fancy, yeah, name catching, dropping. Catching up here. Name <laughs> dropping, baby, name dropping. Um, um, so, he, you know, he, he was in a tasting group that I was in as well, and I was just a young kid, and Tom invited me to it, and I really just loved what he was doing. But this is, he was at Maryvale at the time, and they were making Harlan at Maryvale, and I got to taste those wines, and I just thought what they were doing, you know, the meticulousness of what they were doing was so different than the Valley. Then you have, then you, so, wait, what, what year was that? That would have been 95. I came on board at Duckhorn, and I would have probably okay. tasted the 93, the 94... I definitely remember the 97. At the point, 97 Harlem was probably the best California cab I had had young out of barrel. It was unbelievably good. And 97 is like one of the one of the great California vintages. It is. I mean, people argue now it's not this, it's not that. It's a wonderful wine. Right. I, I collect. I try to collect older California cabs. That's a vintage I look for. 85, 86. 84, sneakily good. 87, 86, 85. You know, um, 97, 94, 91. Those are the vintage I would look for in older vintages. But... He just was very kind to me and would open up a lot of wines for me. You know, he made, Bob Levy made the um, Chardonnay for Palmyre that was in, in Disclosure. Right. So he acted, no, everybody I tell this know that. story a lot, and, and the older I get, the fewer people know what the fuck I'm talking about. But <laughs> Yeah, totally. But, no, I mean, I, yeah. But I love telling that story because I sell Palmyre at, the, at yes. the hotel, and I always wonder if people know that that little reference in yep. the movie that was like the crux of the whole. Well, well that's funny because if you're in the wine business, it's kind of like in, in, in Sideways when he makes fun of Merlot the whole time and then he drinks the Cheval Blanc at the end. So in reality, he doesn't really know what he's talking about. That's that. So all of us in the wine business understand that we know a lot of people in this business who act like they know a lot, but then they do something like that. You're like, okay, well, maybe you don't know as much as you think. What made that story is that wine was so hard to get. And you remember this, Brian. I mean, that wine is impossible to get because it got great scores. And then that's why it was the crux of the story is that she worked so hard to get this wine. Well, and she, she said that, oh, my sec- I just told my secretary to go down to the liquor store yeah. down on the corner and pick up a bottle of wine. She happened to pick up Paul Meyer, so you know it was bullshit. Yeah, it was total, and that's what, that's what caught her. And it's the right. funny thing is that that's the truth. It was so hard to get back then. But he made that wine, and he made his great Chardonnay, but really he hung, you know, I think this day people just know him for Harlan, you know, and, and, and so I just think everything they did, and they do to this day, um, is – um, meticulous. I mean, from Bill Harlan's, just the way he built the winery, they don't miss. There's not like, you know how oftentimes people say, well, we're going to sell $300 bottle of wine, we're going to be this, we're going to be that. Then you catch the miss a little bit, like, well, that's a little less original to me. If you go to Harlan, everything there, I mean, we're down to the toilet, you know, toilet uh, paper holder. It's perfect. It's unbelievable. That's what I'm wondering, because besides quality of fruit and then barrels, like, wh- what is it that they do differently than everyone else? I think it's just the way, I think it's Bill Harlan's vision. I think it's all there. And then how Bill Harlan's vision ties into, you know, the, uh, um, Bob Levy and then uh, Don. Oh, shoot. I'm sorry. I pulled a blank right now. Don Weaver's vision to sell the wine. I mean, then the people they hire are all aligned. I mean, I think really in any winery, if you're not aligned, you have issues or a restaurant or any business. You need to have one person's vision, then you're going to find to get to that vision. I think they've, that's what they wanted to do from the very beginning. He has this vision. And it's beautiful, too. I mean, but the funny thing is, as me, I mean, that was the wine I just was addicted. I was so, like, 
caught up it had to be the next Harlan, right? And, and, and I just sort of said at one point when I was a winemaker of Plump Jack, you know, I think we're just going to try to be Plump Jack now. And I think I can, I could really identify with how great Harlan is, but I think what we're doing, need, I think authenticity comes from what you're trying to do. You know, I was with another winemaker down in Paso Robles this week, and he goes, just make the wines you love to make and find a, find a, uh, a crowd that will enjoy them. You know, don't try to do the other way around, you know. And that's really what I think we've all believed in. There's a great book Simon Sidek wrote called Why Not What? And it's a very good book on marketing of just how do these brands get, like how, how come Apple beat Microsoft, right. you know, with the Zoom versus the, I mean, Microsoft had all this money. They had a head start. The reality was is that Apple just knew how to market themselves and they just stayed true to who they were. Now they're, of course, they're the evil empire. They you know how we're all going wow, okay, well that, that took a turn for the worst, you know, so. Um, Don't say that in front of my iPhone, they're listening. I know, no, they know right now. <laughs> I'm going to get, and right now I'm going to. All of a sudden our, our <laughs> podcast but, ratings are dropping. Well, no, like, we yeah, don't know right why. Well, wait a minute. And my retirement. And, and my battery, and my battery, and my battery on my phone, and then I'm going to get up and when my phone, look at my phone, it's going to be like, you know, no, actually, you know, articles will come up from, oh, Google's actually the empire, so it's Facebook. Okay, right, no, yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Um, so, it's definitely Facebook. No, but I think that's what they do. I mean, if, if you were to say, I mean, if you ask that question, everybody, that's my take. It's just that they are meticulous on every, they think through everything. They hire the be- the great people, and they work very hard. So, but there's this thing with with winemaking where it's a con- in modern winemaking, it's a convergence of art and science, right? So there's the artistic side, but then what role do you think that computers play now in modern winemaking that they didn't 20 years ago? You know, it's a good question. I, am a, I, I love phenolics. I'm a big phenolic fan. I'm a believer in it. It's, an, it's enabled me to, you know, sometimes stop um, the madness, which is, you know, picking raisins. Oh, we want, you know, it's hard. Tannins will get ripe. I want to pick fresh fruit. I want to pick ripe fruit, but I want to pick raisins. Raisins, raisins don't make good wine. They never have. They never will. I mean, Zinfandel is the only varietal that you can get some raisins in, and that still makes great wine. Although you some, have to get some raisins to means that. Balance the, out the green berries. And balance, yeah, I know, and then balance out the carrying It's planted yeah. all around yeah, it. Exactly. So, I mean, it's just one of those things. So, or petite raw. But that's why, that's why they did it. So, I think that really helps a lot. Um, other than that, I, I think the better bottling lines, you, you know, you're more, you know, you're not getting less oxygen there and there and there. But phenolics to me is a very important thing. It's a tool that I don't know why more people use. Bordeaux's used it for years. Um, Index to polyphenol, they call it. Um, so, the reality of looking at the grapes and dealing with it. So, could could for our listeners? I mean, there are wine people, but for our listeners that aren't, can you talk about phenolics a little bit? Sure. Yeah. We've had we've had the folks on from Enologics, but yeah, at, when we had them on, we talked more about their weather positioning than we did this part of it. So if you could talk about that. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I you know I've talked to Leo a lot, and I have the utmost respect for Leo. He's an incredibly intelligent man. He saw how this could be important for the wine industry, and I think. If you, you know, for who's used them, you know, again, unfortunately, some people, it is, I think sometimes we get caught up that we want it to be an art. We don't ever want to talk about the science behind it, but there is. But but it's a business. It is a business. And that's the hard part is that, you know, it goes back to dry farming. You know, if if I was able to buy my property 150 years ago for $500, you know, I could maybe take the risk of dry farming. But because banks get involved and, you know, the dirty word are banks, you know, we, not, not every one of us, I can't. I can't go out and buy a $2 million piece of property and just, let me try dry farming. I can't miss. I have to borrow money from a bank. And then if that happens, now, now I will be honest with you, we do deficit irrigate. We're incredibly good deficit irrigators in, in Napa. We don't want to overwater. But you need to get all enough water to get the vines going and get them down, going deeper and deeper, and then cut back slowly. And now this year our vines look great because they're used to it. They're like, oh, this is just like another year to us. I mean, we don't, we don't get a lot of water. But phenolically wise, I mean, I brought them on. 
I wanted to bring him on. I started hearing about them in 90, 92, 93. I was at Davis. And I guess he had come over and gave a talk that I, I wasn't at. And, and it was a very contentious talk. You know, I think part of the problem was, and this is what's really offensive to a lot of winemakers, is I can make a 100-point wine. Because that's what he would say. That was, his, that was his tagline. And I think all of us knowing this room that most 100-point wines are just angels' visits. You get them. You don't know why you got it. And I, I know people that have made them. I've made one. You know, or I've, I've been made one. I've been involved with two or three as consultant. And the reality is... The 07 was a great wine. I love it. It's my favorite wine I ever made. What's the matter? I was just going to ding the 100 Oh, yeah. Our 100 <laughs> Yeah. But that was uh, Oakville Ranch. That uh, was your 100 it was, point? It was, it, was, it, was, it was Plump Jack. It was Plump Jack. But, but the reality is, um, on that, uh, I just, was only 98, I don't think. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, so, sorry. Yeah, your, dad, doc, your dad cost me two points. Yeah, exactly. But um, I, I think that. Um, he did. He did. So, <laughs> too many reasons. It was my fault. It was my fault. My fault. So, I. Uh, I just think that I can't tell you why a lot of my friends will tell you, you know, some of the wines I've made are better or less or more, but that was, I think, very offensive. So that's off on the wrong foot for a lot of people. And I think what was lost in the shuffle of this was it's an incredibly powerful tool. It's a tool. It's all it is. It's like a tool like anything else, like a pump or anything like that. And we use it as a tool, but we use it more in the vineyards, you know, and, and what it's really allowed us to do is, you know, not to chase one cluster per shoot if we don't have to, not to pick raisins if we don't have to. All the things that people want today in this, fresher wines, more acid, it's allowing us to do that, lower alcohols. This tool is allowing me to do all of that. You know, in some years, like, you know, 20, you, you, you know, there weren't the fires, we would struggle, we probably would have struggled with alcohol because it was a hotter vintage. It was actually, it was 117 degrees. I mean, I mean, good luck with that. But for the most part, you can look at the grapes, you can understand where good grapes come from. You can understand if you're farming correctly. And it really holds people accountable in the end because all of the winemakers out there, we've been either you point at the vineyard manager, they point at you, you know, it's their fault. It's their fault. Where is a disconnect? Is it, you know, are we getting good grapes and are, are we, and are we missing in the winery or are we, are we, are these grapes as good as you can? And you guys are hitting a home run in the winery. It really helps that. And that's why I use it. And I look for it and it holds everybody accountable. So, I mean, when I worked for the Benzigers, we used it. It was about that era yeah. of, of um, Enologics. And it was really interesting because both Mike and Joe used it completely differently. Mike used it for the vineyard, and he used it for a couple of years to kind of establish a, a line, you know, where he was at numerically for the vineyard. 100%. And, and Joe used it in the fermenters. And then Joe used it in the blender. And, yeah. and, and, and if he's listening, sorry, Joe, but, you know, I said it then, I'll say it now. I think it was a little bit to the fault of following it for the blending because he was using numbers to try to get wines that weren't those numbers, right? He was trying to blend yeah. things in to try to raise numbers. Yeah, and that's the hardest part. You still got to taste your wines. Right. You know, that's the whole thing. It's a tool. It's like anything else. It's kind of, I always say it's like, I've always compared it to Moneyball in a very crude way. You know, if you ever read the book Moneyball, um, it's analytics, but, but the A's have never won a World Series. They've been incredibly competitive with a very low, very low payroll. We know that. And they've had to tra trade away their great stars. If they could have kept those great stars with money, they would have won a World Series eventually because, I mean, the pitching was some of the best pitchers in, in that era. But then meanwhile, you had the Red Sox who use analytics as well. Hell, Bill James came from Boston. I mean, they, you know, when they moved to Boston, he they hired the analytics team. In the I mean, the Moneyball movie is correct. And then they won a couple, three, what, they won two or three World Series. Three? Yeah, with, with analytics in yeah. there. Then, of course, they've now gone back to overspending. But that's what they do. They can. So it, it is a good tool in the right hands. And that's and, But you can never – and I think I can make a 100 point wine also can be very difficult for the workers that work there like no it, it takes more than just this thing you need hard workers who are dedicated working long hours it makes you know people with good palates it takes good vineyards good farming it's, it's again it's a tool that makes sure everybody comes together but 
it really does, it is a powerful tool. And I would recommend for the cost of, of it, it's, you know, it's, as, as Craig Williams said, the old winemaker at Phelps, it's a deck, it's a deck chair on the Titanic. You know, at this point, any winery, winery owner has spent, you know, five to $10 million on a, on a winery, you know, property, vineyard development, all that. And so this last little bit of cost, and I think, Bart, you've been there. I know you have where it's like, hey, we need this. Oh, I don't have any more money. Well, wait a second. You've already spent all this money. This will help us. So, but it, nope, no more money. Okay. And so Craig's always said that. And I love that, that aspect of it. You know, it's a deck chair on the Titanic. Because if you can raise your price points, just say, say you can raise your price points $5 a bottle and you make 1,000 cases. You know, even if you're selling it at a wholesale, that's $25. Sometimes that's $25,000. That's a lot of money over a course of 10 years. So the reality is it's a powerful tool. It's just a tool, though. I mean, it's, I, I, I use it. I've used it on all my clients. I bring it in. And, but it just shows you, is your farming got to get better or worse? Or are we missing something in the winery? How are we doing this? You know, is, is your fermentation protocols right for your vineyard? That's another thing. You know, is extended maturation work here or does it not? Why? You know, there's different questions for different aspects. So. Thank you for talking about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I recommend it. So whether it's Enologics or Wine X-Ray or even ETS, you should be using it. Can, for for the sake of the casual listener, um, will you just break down a little bit of like when you get an Enologic score, what they're testing for, and and how you apply that to sure. n- yeah, it's, what it's, it's you're it's thinking? A pheno- they give you a phenolic report, either wine X-ray or ETA. I'll give you a phenolic report of the tannins, total phenols, all these. And I'm really looking at the amount of color being developed in the in the grape. As we know, I mean, look, Pinot Noir. You can argue light people love light Pinot Noir, people love dark Pinot Noir not with Syrah blended in, you know, so let's just put it that way, just true Pinot Noir we're talking about here, but I do feel that with Cabernet, you know, qualitatively, more color means a better farm vineyard, I mean, if you have Cabernet and there's no color, you know, there's something going on, whether it's red blotch or you're missing farming or not watering correctly, or your, you know, perfect example is up until, what, 10 years ago, people didn't water after Verasion, you know, it's like, oh, we're done, and you're like, well, what are you doing? You're basically killing your vineyard now, right? When the fruit gets ready to harvest it, you're you're killing your vineyard, so. Right, when it needs you the most. Yeah, it does, I mean, and, but people would argue that's what we do. You know, I'm like a concentration. No, you're getting alcohol. You're not really getting concentration. And see, that's kind of what these numbers allow you to do is like, when am I following a fad or when, it, you know, these numbers are actually saying this is not working for me. That's really what it's a value of. Like yeah. all these ideas I have in my head that I've read that, oh, this winemaker does this or the winemaker does that. It doesn't work for us. You know, and in reality, it only matters to you. Whatever else everybody's doing, that's their thing. You know, but what, what if it works, does it work for me or does it not? So we look at color and we look at the development of color over time and how you get it out of the skins. Um, grapes have proteins in them. We all know that's how the seeds have been built. But over time, those proteins do nature. But what happens is if you pick in the wrong window, that protein comes out of the skins. We've all seen a grape sample or berry sample out there, you know, who pulled one, and the, and the, and the, and the juice is cloudy. That's still the proteins in the, in, in the haze in there. That'll find the first blast of color out and you lose that. So you want to make sure that that protein is denatured. That's why the hang time came on. But we made the mistake of pushing it all the way to the right, so let's just pick raisins so we make sure that's all gone. Well, now we can understand that there's a window that you can do, get the extraction you want, maceration that you want, and still have lower alcohols. And this tool allows me to do that. And, and, and with a better crop on your vine, so you can get three to three and a half tons and make great wines. So this is a tool that I think, you know, all these, you know, you only need one cluster per shoot, one ton per acre on these young vines. What we've found is that, you know, this, these, it actually throws the vine out of whack because they're, they're powerhouses. These soils are so, so rich that you end up getting grapes that have an incredibly high pH, tons of potassium, and it's almost throwing the grapes off. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, if the vine's struggling in the rocky soils, you don't want to overcrop it. But the reality is on a good, he- healthy vine, two and a half to three and a half tons an acre will not 
because you remember if you're, we're going tighter too so tighter spacings these days and you know if you're at 16 17 you know with a four by six or something in that area it's like 1800 vines an acre if you hang three or four pounds of vine that's three tons an acre that's not a lot of fruit now if you're at 750 vines you know if you hang you know that you're not gonna get anything you know so you have to hang more fruit to get there so that's kind of what you're looking at i think that was that was a great explanation let's um we, you kind of glossed over it for a second there, but one of the things that that was one of the first times we ever had dinner. You brought old California wine to you know a dinner that Phil and Robert came and brought you know fancy old French wine to, and sort of like opened my eyes a little bit and mind a little bit about collecting and seeking out you yeah. know all these old California wines. So um, talk about talk about that a little bit, and let's talk about what you brought. Yeah, to. you know. The dirty adage is California wine doesn't age, and I think, you know, that's completely BS. It's funny, uh, I brought some old California Cabernet to Oliveto for their truffle dinner, and um, I had a, the 50s, from the 50s, and so the owner of Oliveto said to me, you know, it's funny, these California wines, because there's, so there's so much acid back in the day in these wines, these wines age like old Barolo Barbaresco, and they do, there's a lot of acid, a lot of freshness in these wines, and I think that's, I think what we're getting away from again, again, going back to phenolics, I'm able to harvest grapes with freshness and acidity, rather than raisins, and that's really my goal, you know, but yeah, I, I still think that you err on the side of ripeness, because we're California, we're Mediterranean, it's drier here, that's our, that's our terroir, and I, I'm never going to apologize for where the grapes are grown. I think that we've sort of gotten an apologetic state in the California wine. It's like, oh, I wish we'd, our wines tasted more like Burgundy or, or Bordeaux. No, I, I, I wish our wines taste like where they come from. I, I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, they've grown here. I mean, your dad that's, grows these great That's great the real grapes. thing. And yeah. so, um, but these wines, you know, the hard thing is now is, it's so funny. I mean, you look at, you can't buy anything right now. I mean, we all know. I mean, NFTs, Bitcoin, all this stuff. There's so much money chasing so few things. The California collectibles market now is insane, especially for like Martha's Vineyard, Diamond Creek, Mayacamas. Um, but I still think, you know, there's a ton of bargains out there. And I'm actually, I love the old Sonoma, you know, working at Lasser now and helping out there. I've been buying a lot of older Sonoma wines. And I was always a fan of uh, Patrick Campbell's wines at um, Laurel Glen. Those wines were always smoke show wines. They're fantastic. And I'm able to go back and get those wines. But older Kenwoods from the 70s are stunning. And uh, Carmenet, I brought an 85 Carmenet because I know your dad was involved in this property at one point, And I thought he'd be fun. He said he's going to come by now. So Well, uh, we'll hear his truck. Yeah, you, so. you hear his, he can't hear it. The brakes on his truck have a very like high pitched and very singular squeak. Yeah, you're smart. You don't so, fix it that way. You know he's coming. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we don't we don't tell him, but yeah. we know he's like a couple blocks away. Yeah, my mom him, had but, but rolling remember, through a stop he sign. He drives down a lot of steep hills. Yeah, so. my mom had a Volvo. You know, one of those big bam, boomer Volvos. You know, just bomber Volvos that you could hear from a mile away. So I never got caught with my girlfriend in my axle because <laughs> <Exactly. laughs> it was just you could hear that car all the way like four miles away. So. <laughs> Back on. Yeah, so, huh? Yeah, I know exactly. No, it was like, oh, we're just sitting here studying. Yeah, you know, totally. so she says, how come, how come I knew that? I'm like, because your car is so loud. But, uh, yeah, so I, I collect these. I try to. It's gotten harder and harder to, you know, to get some of these because there weren't a lot of these made, you know, and, and uh, but I love the Patrick Campbell wines. I mean, these wines. Um, what else are we getting? Oh, you know, everybody forgets that Kissler started as a Cabernet Chardonnay winery up on Moon Mountain. I mean, right. that's hilarious, you know, and the, oh, the, the, Charlie, Charlie Smith, Smith yeah, Chardonnay yeah, yeah, is right I next to that. I make for my own brand, yes. So, but it's funny, now they're a Russian River brand. No, they still buy a lot of fruits from Sonoma Valley, whether it be Moon Mountain or Sonoma Mountain. Well, and I think they still own that vineyard. They do, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's all Chardonnay mm -hmm. now, no more Cabernet. Okay. So, um, yeah, so. So, I, I don't remember the exact wine, but I 
before cell phones, I was driving home from Kenwood one year during harvest, and I stopped at the payphone at um, Arnold Drive and Grove, and I was calling my at that time wife to tell her I was on my way home. Cause this no is right there, right there at the gas station. At the gas station. I think is there still a payphone there? At least there's the booth where the payphone Probably was. Probably yeah. No, no, is right by the is that by the 76? Yeah. yeah exactly. I almost guaranteed there's one right there. Yeah. I almost yeah. guaranteed there's this payphone. So, like the last payphone in Sonoma Valley. <laughs> right. So in that booth that day, I found Richard Graff's day planner and it was i like opened it up to see who who what it was whose it was and it was obviously wine notes and it was leather it was a leather bound so cool. had his card contacted him told him i found it so the next day someone came to my house no they came to the winery and they brought me a case of semion carmenet semion and a case of Sonoma Valley, this red blend. And I don't remember the vintage, but it probably would have been around this time. Um, awesome. And I drank every one of those <laughs> bottles immediately. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> First, so three weeks. Let's <laughs> say like Tom Rinaldi's talking about 70, uh, I think 78 uh, George Latour. He's like, how many I've left? He's like, oh, I drank that in the first year. Right. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> but then another one is uh, uh, Richard Arrowwood. Those yeah. are other wines that I collect too. Those wines are fantastic. Yeah, I totally. mean, just really, really beautifully crafted wines. So. It's been fun, you know, and I was very lucky to have, you know, Fred Berenger, who owned the, uh, the bottle shop. It was called The Bottle Shop, then it became the St. Lena Wine Center. It would open a lot of older wines for me, and that's how I got to know them, so. This is delicious. First, you smell it, it's a Jeff Baker wine. It is, and right? again, one of the original wines as well. I mean, he made so many yeah. beautiful wines. He still was working with your dad on... Uh, yeah, Stone at Stone 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 Farm. He's, he's now winemaker emeritus, so when Phil's meeting him, he just goes, I'm, I'm with emeritus right now. <laughs> I know, how old could, is he couldn't Jeff? spell it. Uh, I mean, 85, I was 15, so... Jeff is probably five or six years older than my dad, so he's in his, he's in his 70s, um, would be my guess. Uh, you know, he was... He was what, he was at Mayakamas in the 70s uh, before he went down to Shalone and then came up with, with Dick Graff to, to start Carmenet. So I, you know, I think he was one of the early classes of the master's program at Davis. So that's got to be yeah, in, no, this, in the early 70s I, probably? This, yeah, this had, this, has, this had, I think, this wine also has, at some point they bought the last, you know, the... Just the the crew yeah, yeah so premier, what did they call that premier crew no was that well no it was uh, grand, was, grand, grand crew, crew. so yeah. so Shalone bought grand crew after grand crew had sat empty AVG had it as a custom crush or okay. storage place for years um, and then uh, Shalone had it but what Shalone did wrong is they wanted to build a bunch of casitas out there and put in a big bottling line and they wanted to use it as that. And so it was going to be a lot of truck traffic going down by the school. That makes sense. And the um, Dunbar Parents Association made these bumper stickers, and they said, Shalone, don't crush, Carmenet, don't crush our kids. And they were yeah, all over. over. That's over. And that was it's it. Done. That, that, they that's sold done. it, and it sat, you know, looking for a home for a number of years, and then the Lassiter's bought it. So, that, that, there you go. So, and now it's reprie, correct? Now it's reprie. Yeah, reprie. Yeah, now it's reprie. So, and your dad planted it. Correct. Yeah, so you know, my dad worked at that property through the '70s and into the '80s um, before before um, Shalone okay. bought it. Um, it was a at one point it was like a cult. cult. It, it was a cult, cult some like cult weird monastery. sort of commune up there, and they planted the vineyard originally. And they planted the vineyard. The story that he always said is that they planted the vineyard um, with pressure treated stakes. <sighs> <laughs> and so the vineyard the vineyard died and then so in the 70s i think is when he 
was like he replanted it. He was on the replant job and then uh harvested there worked uh, worked harvest there ridge would buy grapes from there okay. uh glen ellen vineyards and that's okay, something to yeah. look for in your in yeah, your searching glen, so 70s glen ellen vineyards always, on, yeah, under ridge ahead, i mean there's obviously no. small brands that no one knows about that have got the best grapes i mean i always talk about duckhorn when i was at duckhorn in the 90s we were buying scarecrow right we were buying spotswood i mean we bought all these i mean that's that's the funny thing about it now is all these guys make their own small amounts of wine but but they were they were sellers. I mean, I, I, you know, the, the Morisoli family, whom I buy fruit for for another brand, are one of the only ones left that really are just a net sixty acres of a net seller. They make a little bit of wine now now because their son came back to do it, and the wine's fantastic. Joel makes it, but the reality is they're a net seller of grapes. That's very rare left in the valley. You know, yeah. Lee Hudson has a vineyard now, or winery now. Right. Do, do the San Giacomo's have a winery? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they do. I mean, again, there's so much. They there still is, sell more than they They do, but they still make. But, but, but there's, and there's so much money to be made in the wine if you do it right. I mean, especially when you're selling grapes like that. But, you know, back in the night, you know, I'm sure a lot of these great vineyards now that are, that are backbones of wineries, you know, state small wineries, sold were, net, were sellers back in the day. Cayman, yeah, yeah. Cayman sold a lot of you know a lot of grapes until the late '90s and yeah. even into the early 2000s. Yeah. Yep. So there you go. I mean, it's just it's just interesting, you know. This wine's great. This wine is it's, amazing. It's, it's at it's at its pinnacle and it's perfectly yeah. crafted. It's like tastes like Bordeaux. See to me, what I always find is so interesting about Sonoma Old or Sonoma Valley it you could put these in a flight, and especially the Laurel Glens. That's a dead ringer for Bordeaux. I think if you were to put that wine into a Bordeaux, a second growth, or even a first growth, I don't think it would. It probably might not be to every first growth. I don't think it's coming in last. Yeah. I guarantee you that. That wine is so. And this wine here, this wine is so much pleasure in it yeah. and just unctuousness. Everybody told me my palate would end up. I mean, of course, you start on the wine business. Like, I want the biggest, most alcoholic, rich wine possible. I remember one time we were at Mustard's back in the day when Mustard's had. They still have a great list, but they really had the list in Napa Valley, and they're trying to get me to order 1990 Pignon, which is the Reyes's other label. But I wanted the Ridge Zinfandel so bad. And I threw such a fit. We ordered that. Now I'm going, why didn't I get that? You know, I just, that's a $900 bottle of wine. That would have probably been a smart idea, you know. <laughs> but you love, your, your heart wants what it wants, you know. So, Tony, tell us about this year, what you're seeing out in the vineyard, what you're excited about, what you're worried about. I'm excited to make wine this year. <laughs> there are any of you who don't know. I mean, a lot of us didn't get to make a lot of wine last year. So, I mean, cause, just because of the smoke taint issues and the, and the grapes and so forth. We did make, you know, we did make a lot of wine at Hourglass. I was really excited for it. And then the fire came through and tore that up. So, the yeah. fire took, took yeah, what is, We'll me. talk about that, I guess, later. So, What's the scene at Hourglass? But, uh, but, yeah, I'm excited to make wine. It's small crop. Small, you know, we were just talking about this earlier before we turned on the microphones. Small big you know, seeds, thick skins. It's going to be a tannin management year. Uh, Sauvignon Blanc is way down. It's just, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a um, drought year, so not a lot of water to you know, make the grapes plump. So it's going to be intense vintage. And I think it's going to be a fast vintage. I think there's not a lot out there. So, you, you know, you think you're going to walk five rows to get your bins. You're going to walk 10 rows to get your bins and the vineyard will be empty. So mm-hmm. it's going to be one of those type of years. But I think I've always learned to, you know, not outguess mother nature. Cause she always throws weird curveballs at you and, you know, you know, sometimes she grooves a fastball, you're able to hit it. So, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited just to make wine and, and I'm really excited. I, I, I don't know if you guys are like this. I love harvest. I think harvest I, is the most thing. I would, I'd rather work 50 harvests in a row than work one bottling day. You know, <laughs> yeah. being honest, I mean, <laughs> you know, cause it always ends up clanging, clanging, clanging by the end of the day. So right. yeah, no harvest is what it's all about. And I, well, and I think we really missed, I, I, definitely feel like it, you know, last year's well, harvest, two harvests. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Right. I mean, uh, but but last year's harvest went even when we were picking grapes, and you know we were still everybody was wearing masks and 
we spread the crew out in the vineyard. It, just, it like it was quiet. Yeah. It didn't have that sort of like vibe to it. So I'm I'm definitely. I always say it's the know, pirate ship vibe. You know. Yeah, it's exactly. Just, it's all, you know, because that's why Lee Hudson always puts the pirate flag up. You know, and I kind of agree with that pirate flag. It's a pirate ship. Yeah, you know, totally. everybody's going a million miles an hour. You don't know how people are going to react to the stress of harvest. It's you know, you're putting out fires here. You're enjoying it here. Sharp yeah. objects everywhere. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and, and I'll be honest with you. I think. Bart, you'll agree. We all we all become addicted to it. It's an addiction. It's a rush. It's such a rush that you love. Everybody will kind of complain and him and Hob, but we all love it. It's addictive. It's addiction. I love it. I do it so much. And then you come down afterwards. You're you're basically go through low level PTSD efforts all over. You're sad. You're where did it go? You know, yeah. I always, you know, it's not the same thing. But I always, if you ever seen the movie uh, um, Hurt Locker. Mm. You know, when, when Jeremy Renner at the end of the, after he comes back from doing all that crazy stuff, he's just like walking through the uh, grocery store, just looking around all day long. That's what you kind of feel like after harvest. Like, there's nothing to pick, there's nothing to do. You know? The, I mean, the, ear, the like weird feeling of being back in a vineyard a couple of days after it gets picked. Yeah. It's like you look around, there's, there's no, you know, the vines are these very like, you know, there's still leaves on them, but there's this like void there's this void on the vine that you like feel pretty deeply you're yeah, like, it's oh, over i mean yeah. Yeah, the life of the life of that vintage is done and then the funny thing i think it's the way the sun is on it too because you know mm-hmm. we're always picking when the sun's lowering in the sky and it's a little bit of breeze and it's the cold air coming out of the north and you're just in there and just like okay it's over and it's just sort of a downer yeah. you know in the winery we would always judge where where this season the growing season was is when you had to start pulling out a sweatshirt yeah, like, it's a fair know, one. I mean, yeah, you know, you go and it's all day. It's hot, and then it gets to a point where you need that sweatshirt yeah. early. Or how long you wear it in the morning? You or know, how long one. you wear it in the morning? I used to, yeah. we used to always do it as how long? How long would Tom Tom Rinaldi wear shorts? Right. That was the game. We'd have a game. You know, we'd bet each other. Like, is it going to be December first, December fifth? Now you he's gone play, to shorts. You can play year that round. game with Phil, Phil too. Yeah. yeah. Then we go year round. We go year round now. Yeah, so Bradley's yeah, always going to wear shorts. shorts I'm not. I'm not as tough as those guys. I go. I go pants pretty quickly. So, so well, the was, shorts you're wearing today are barely hanging on. I, know, so I, know. I did that in the vineyard this morning, and now I just it's gotten even worse too. Sorry, oh, sorry. So I there's a, probably some duct tape around here. I know, Tony. If you need it, packing tape. Yeah, no, I should have done. Yeah, it's bad. Sorry. So Tony, open a tie dye T-shirt. Yeah. Right. What was Tom Rinaldi like? Um, after harvest like was he someone that could get behind just letting the wines rest and everybody kind of get back to normal or did he always feel that there was work to be done regardless we would roll we would roll into blending so right after harvest we'd wrap up and we'd start the blending the previous vintage he really believed he would always say when the winds blow out of the north you rack so he wanted to taste the wines he wanted to start blending the wines and racking the previous vintage so that's what we would do and that's we would roll that you know it would be funny because it's so much different now because Bart, you're gonna remember this too. We would lose our Hispanic crew to Mexico for a month, right. and so we knew that was gonna happen. So we we had to get all the hard, hard lifting done because you know at then there's only three gringos in the cellar, and hey, we're lazy. You know, I'm gonna be honest. Yeah, I'm joking, but I mean, we couldn't get the work done. We needed to get done. We could do topping and stuff like sure. that, but we couldn't move 200, 300 barrels. Sure. You know, and we needed the bodies to do it, but. We knew. I mean, their car was. I'm not joking. You know, the Hurtado family, who's an amazing family, they basically run all of Duckhorn back then. It was Juan and Pino, Agrippino Hurtado, and their cars would be idling, and it would be <laughs> packed full of stuff. And they would literally. I mean, it'd just be it's five o'clock. Gun, see you later. See you in a month, and they'd be gone. I mean, and they worked so hard, they deserved every bit of that. But we knew. Uh oh, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> you know, John John Sheila used to um, hold back this bonus for all the pickers and the and the seller guys. Um, and they couldn't have it until after the harvest party. Yeah. And we always had the harvest party when harvest was actually over, not when the marketing department had it. And that's how he would keep the crew because the vineyard crew would get to the point when it got 
late in the season and yep. it was hard to pick, or if there was a light crop on Cabernet and, like you said, you had to go walking. to twice as you many. You're walking five miles to get one ton? No, yep. absolutely. And, and they would just – it wouldn't be worth it. They'd either go north and pick – from uh, fruit trees in Oregon, or they yep. go back to Mexico. Yeah, so we were okay with it. And that was the that was the, it was for us. And, but then we had we would get the bl- try to get the blends done as quickly as possible. We would taste Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. You know, whatever we tasted Thursday, we come back and try again on Thursday, then Wednesdays, and then maybe Fridays too. It all depends. And so we would get all the main blends together. We'd rack and put those blends together, and then uh, we would basically from about December tenth to January fifth when the Hispanic crew came back. We were just tinkering, topping doing that stuff but it was i mean it was very much a year-round thing i loved it there i mean i i I learned so much from tom and even dan duckhorn i mean dan duckhorn really much pretty much on how to build a brand side and how to market i mean he's a genius and he doesn't get enough credit for understanding the modern and what he's created the modern california market for the three-tier system how to manage a brand both three-tier i mean i think a lot of the problems everybody wants to sell wine direct to consumer there's the most money and small brands can do it but i think the most successful brands have have an aspect of both restaurants and retail shops you know and and Dan did a great job of that managing, and I learned a lot from him. And he was he was kind enough to let me sit and listen to a lot of the meetings, and it was great. I learned so much from him. So, all right. So to that point, I think I heard you on a show in 2018, and they were asking about sort of your predictions for the future. And one of them was you said in the next 10 years, the real thing that wineries need to be cognizant of is moving back to basically hand touching, handwritten cards to their wine club um, people and, and personal phone yeah. calls. And, yeah, I, I, um, I, I think, I feel, I shouldn't say I think, I feel that, um, again, it goes back to why not what. I mean, the, your customers are your lifeblood. But that's also a wholesale channel, too. Just know who your customers are, know your end base, and just have a re- relationship with them. You can't touch everybody, but you should try, you know, at least to say hello and talk to them. And I think we've sort of lost... Um, touch sometimes with that. I think, you know, it's been so easy for so long in this business that we'll find the next set of customers, but that, that's probably going to change, I think, for everybody coming in the future. And, you know, we need to sort of, again, I also believe make the wines you love making and then find the people that want to buy them and then nurture those people. And then hopefully those, I mean, because we all know the power of one, po- the, what is it? The power of one good customer will tell 10, a bad customer will tell 100. That, not a bad customer, but if they have a bad experience, they're not bad. Maybe you failed. And they're, they're, I remember um, Campanile, the restaurant Campanile, uh, Mark Peel, who just passed away, I read a great article that he wrote, and he goes, sometimes there are tough customers, though. And sometimes, you know, not every customer gets it 100% their way, especially if they're offensive to staff or, if they, you know, if they say something that's offensive to your staff or treat you very poorly. But more often than not, it's probably somewhere where you failed and you want to make sure that's right. So, and, th- and I think that was, you know, one of the positive things that came out of the last year and a half was, was winery owners or winemakers learning about actually having personal contact with some of their customers. Well, I think COVID taught us a lot that we should, we're just lucky that we still have customers. I mean, this, I think, you know, we don't know where it's going either. I mean, I was telling somebody today, look at the, you know, the troubles of trucking and all these things. Now, I think just now are we feeling the bruises of, of COVID. I think it was such a shock to the system yeah, for the, the last ripples. year. The yeah. ripples now are really what you're feeling. You know, I think we all at this table can talk about friends that are different now. They're just like, boy, this person just changed over the last course of the year. I haven't seen them in a year and they're just different. Or the way the way marketing works. I mean, good luck trying to get any piece of you know. I try to buy a refrigerator. Like, yeah, it's about seven, seven to eight to ten weeks out to buy a refrigerator. Yeah. I mean, who knew? I mean, oh well, you know, it's the you know, good luck trying to get vineyard work done. I mean, it's just really crazy right now. So, we're lucky to have customers. I think that's why we should yeah. touch them more. So, 
And I was I was telling uh, Morgan Twain Peterson was on the show two or three weeks ago, or maybe it was a month ago, and I was telling him time doesn't have any meaning. I know. I said I said it was really funny that I'm I'm pouring the Once in Future Merlot by the glass and and have gotten handwritten notes from Joel saying, "Thank you for pouring my Merlot." Um, yeah. And I I haven't I don't get notes like that from anyone. I no. get you know I get. Do I need to send you a note because you're yeah. now pouring my uh, Sonoma Valley Zinfandel by the glass? Well, you can just tell me, Sam. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for pouring my Sonoma Valley Zinfandel by the glass, Brian. That was great. You get two birds with one stone on this meeting. That's yeah. good. Congratulations. That's good. You did. But it, but it but it does actually make a difference to me. It was it it was one of those things where you go through that initial three cases and you go, okay, what am I going to move on next to or you know what? I'm going to continue to pour that wine because I know the person that's making it actually appreciates the fact that I'm doing it. Yeah, yeah Ryan, you're, you're totally on totally on with that. Hey, Tony, can you talk, um, I think, probably the, the what brand you're associated with that we know the least about is your own brand. Yeah, Patria. So, again, uh, or Patria, everybody calls it. Do you have any Chardonnay want. left? I, I'm sold out, Fuck. so I sell out quickly on that one. So, it's... <laughs> I always wanted to make my own. I think you know every chef wants to have his own restaurant, and every every wine every winemaker wants to have their own wine. I think it's a great outlet to be able to ex, to do the you know to sort of your own. I think a lot of the times when you're working for wineries, very few winemakers get to craft a wine without you know the investor or the main owner's influence. You know, you know I mean you just don't get to just run willy nilly. They have to like the wine and agree with the wine. I did have one owner say, "I want you to make a cabernet that falls between Schrader and Spotswood." And I'm like, you could have a truck through that. That's going to be pretty easy for me. <laughs> you know? so, I mean, yeah, yeah, well, I mean, I mean, come on. I mean, those wines are so diametrically different. I love them both. I mean, but uh, so I think when you have your own thing, it's your really your own. Sure, please. Thank you. It's, it's, it's your own view. So I started in 2013. Um, um, and uh, it's basically the first vineyard I ever wanted. I walked with Dan was like in about 98 was Oakville Ranch. And... Uh, it's a party over here. People just come and go. They just drink yeah. wine. Uh, Tony, meet Joel Burt. Hi, Joel. Joel, meet Tony Biaggi. So uh, the benefits of living in the neighborhood, Joel. Yeah. So, so uh, 1998, Dan Duckhorn took me to Oakville Ranch, and I just fell in love with the vineyard. You know, it's it's a plateau between Dollar. Wait, wait, so who took you? Sorry, who took uh, you? To Dan Duckhorn. In 98. Oh, yeah, 98. Cause oh, we were wow. buying fruit from there. That's how I knew yeah. about the vineyard. And. And so it, it, the vineyards between Ovid and Dalavale, and Dalavale to me, I, that's the wine I identified the most with during the so-called cult boom. Um, I just thought it was a great winery. Gustav and Naoko were so sweet uh, to me. They were such nice people. Um, I thought Maya, out of all the cult wines, if you look at them, you know, that was the most interesting because it was Cabernet Franc-based. I mean, everything else was 100% Cabernet or this or that. That was a Cabernet Franc-based red wine, and that always identified with me. The label was goofy. I mean, it was designed, I think, by Chuck House, so a very expensive, goofy label, but it didn't look like a Cabernet. It didn't look like a label, like in a, you know, Bordeaux label. And so I always wanted to buy fruit from up there, that red dirt, which is very unique. And I bugged them for years while I was a winemaker at Plump Jack to buy fruit, and at the time it was uh, – Oh, gosh, it's, it'll come to me. Uh, sorry, it was – oh, I can't think of the name. The wonderful woman. Uh, Paula Cornell was managing the property, and she says, no, you know, we're not going to sell you any property right now because uh, – or any any grapes right now because you're going to just blend it into Plump Jack, and you're going to lose the signature of Oakville Ranch. So finally, when I was able to go up in 13, she said, okay, since you're going to bottle it under its own name, you know, Oakville Ranch, I'll, I'll sell you some grapes. And so subsequently, you know, I got to know your father really well from there. 
and I've grown the small brand. It's about a thousand cases now. Oakville Ranch is the backbone. So I'd, I'll make Cabernet and then I make a, a wine called Avoyles or Avoyelles, which is Cabernet Franc based red wine with Cabernet. And it was sort of an ode to Maya. That's a wine sort of I, I really loved. And so we're a higher plateau, wine's a little different, but you know, made in, um, you know, that soil you really can't get away from making wines that are a little bit more lean because there's tons of acid in that soil, but a little bit more like classical Cabernet. So. And I make a lot. I buy a little Chardonnay. You said Charlie Smith from Moon Mountain as well. I did add another vineyard called Price. It's a 30-year-old uh, Clone 7 and 110R in St. Lena next to Spotswood. And I'm actually talking to your dad about maybe doing something with um, uh, the nunnery. Oh, really? Yeah, okay, maybe cool. Looking to bring me some, some fruit from there and poking around here and there. I'm always having fun looking for new fruit. So. Yeah, it's uh, a. I love the label. The, the bear. The I bear love the bear. Story, yeah, you know, yeah. as a that, Cal- that native California. I became out of this. So I, mean, yeah. I got a nickname out of the whole thing. Everybody calls me the bear. So it's just like. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's just because of the label, Tony. Mm-hmm. No other reason I could no, think I'm, people I'm would ever. I'm a big guy. I'm, I'm a rather large guy. So deep voice. Growly. So. Growly. Not as growly as your father. Your father just growls at me when he calls. I don't understand what he's saying. So. Just say yes. Yeah, exactly. That's how I learned from him. So. <laughs> So yeah, so that's so that's there, and I make it at Hourglass. So and 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 where is that for our listeners if they want to search it out? How is that available? Just from the website? No, no, no. I mean, we do sell wholesale, but I think the best way to get it is PatriaWines.com. But okay. you know, we're about to release the 19, and it will make retail stores. I mean, I, I do believe in the three-tier system: restaurants and retails, shops. I mean, it's at the French Laundry, it's at Bouchon. So, um, but is that you, know, you out selling it, or do you have a broker? No, Kimberly broker? Jones, Kimberly okay, Jones Kimberly selection. Jones. She's my partner in it as well. So okay, she, cool. I've known Kimberly for about almost gosh, now it would be 18 years. So uh, we got to know her when she was working with Paul Bullard still in Southern California when I was at Plump Jack. So we became friends. From Boy, that. that's great. So. You have somebody you trust so much. And, you know, they go out literally well, no, she like has her yourself. Own, she, has her own, she doesn't sell it herself. She has a sales, she has a sales team. So she, has, she, nice. she, she represents, represents other wines as well. So I'm very lucky to have her. Yeah, so, really. Now, and then I'm also in New York and Chicago as well, or Illinois, so in Texas. So it's been fun. That's awesome. It's Patria. It's not Patria. 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 Everybody calls it one or the other. So you guys. Well, what do way, you What do you call it? I, I say Patria because I, I, I slough it off. I put put Patria is how you say it, but it's Patria. Okay. So what What does the name come from? It's native land or native son Paternus, father okay. father land, because I am you know fourth and fifth generation Bay Area. So play off the California flag. Not so much that a Texan would be offended by it, but uh, <laughs> you know, so just enough that everybody in the, in California knows. So. It, Jasmine's asking what the wine is. Another person coming to this is why yeah. this is why I told you to bring this bottle yeah, no, so that we can, no, I can share with fun. all our friends. I mean, I, I love sharing these old bottles. I mean, the funny thing is, you can get these wines perfectly aged for a fraction of some of the new wines on the marketplace, which blows my mind still. Where, where do you get them from? I don't want to tell you that. That's, that's, right. you know, <laughs> you know, the first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. <laughs> auction. I tend to work on some auction houses and I look around and stuff. There's some good auction houses. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll, K&L is a great auction house to work with. Um, you know, they only charge a 5% commission because some of these are charge, house charges 18 to 23% on anything you buy. So if you buy it for 100 you're really paying 123 at, at K&L, you're paying 105 And I, it's funny. I went, to high, I went to junior high school and high school with Clyde Beffa, or the Trey is his name now, Trey Beffa, who owns K&L. And his father was my baseball coach, but I never knew anything like that. My dad knew, so my dad would go there buy Zinfandels and stuff. That's how I got my, my I started in Zinfandels. I loved Zinfandel growing up. So, you know. So, so when are we going to have the, the Patria Zinfandel? I, you know, it's funny. You know, we are buying, you know, we're, we're doing some experimental stuff with Hourglass from some of the, you know, Rossi Ranch. And unfortunately, you know, um, I, I love the 2020, but the, the winery got 
you know, decimating hourglass, right. of course. We were talking about that. I know the fire destroyed hourglass. We had a lot of fun wine in the tank in 2020. I was really excited about getting And those tanks were, like, out there on the crush pad that just burned right through. Yeah, the, the, the roof melted on top of it, yeah. like napalm. And then the, then what happened is they felt the steel, the, integri- uh, the integrity of the steel was warped by the heat. Crazy. And so the roof would collapse. So none of us could do any work on the tanks to get them empty. So that's so we got red tagged by the county. We couldn't work under it. So that's how it ruined. I was really excited about all those wines. I thought we thought you know we really were meticulous in in, in the smoke taint stuff and the stuff that had smoke taint we didn't bring in. Right. So you know we tested a lot of stuff and then the stuff we brought in we really believed highly in. So no, I mean that's the thing about the twenties, right? It, if it's clean, they're they're beautiful wines. They're richer they're, and riper than yeah. the alcohol. They're right. a little higher. It's more like I would say 08. Mm-hmm. But that's a great vintage for a lot of people. I mean, I think Laster has some beautiful wines in, in Tank and in Cellar that I think are really going to be fun. That I think we avoided it. Yeah. I think it's funny. There's so many more tech, there's so many more talks now with Smoke Tain about, you know, because we're dealing with it so much more. You know, what's the, you know they call it now the the travel the travel age of smoke. Right. You know, the farther it travels, is it react the reactivity travel reactivity? You know, the farther it travels, it's, it becomes less and less reactive. And by the time it gets to someplace, it just sits. Rather than, you know, it's kind of like, can you smoke a piece of fish if the fire is 100 miles away? Or can you smoke a piece of fish if the fire is burning five feet from it? Right. You know, it's kind of that deal. I mean, I, I think that's the case. So That's a really good Yeah, that, that, that's a really good point. Well, and especially so far this year, as we've sort of like, you know, this morning I woke up, and, you know, there's a little bit of ash falling on our cars. Yeah. Obviously, we know that's not what causes uh, the weird yeah. color in the sky. Now and it's now gone. it's beautiful yeah. blue out. skies, and, and we've kind of been on the edge of this a, a lot this was like that. We yeah. had that annoying, if you remember, right. the Mendocino fires, and it sat at about, you know, from about 300, 400 feet to about, you know, 2,800, but we, we did not have any problems with smoke. Now, if you were next to it again, you know, right. Sonoma Coast got hammered because it started in South Mendocino and North Sonoma Coast, and the smoke just blew over those grapes, and so that's why there wasn't a lot of Pinot or Chard, and Lake County got hit. But Napa, I think, in Sonoma basically spared. Yeah. Higher elevation vineyards might have struggled a bit. You know, there were some issues I thought here and there, but for the most part, you're on the valley floor. You're pretty, pretty safe. Yeah. But I think in 08, we weren't thinking about that. In those, no, no, right? no. It I mean, had to be almost slap you across the face. Well, this tastes like a piece of smoked salmon. Right. right. You know. Or, and I think or, that or winemakers weren't thinking. They weren't worried about it. They were just saying, oh, that's up in Mendocino. We don't, you know, need to yeah. worry about no, it. No, it's funny you should say that because I know there's a wine, a couple wines I crowd, I won't say names, but I know there's one wine in particular that was at altitude that I made. And, and now thinking back on it, was it the oak or was it smoke? And then I would talk to one of my friends who made the wine from some of the same vineyards. He goes, yeah, I was, don't know. You know, I think it's a little bit of both. And it wasn't grotesquely there, so I think you really had to look for it, you know. Or you had to think about it and know it and then look for it. So. Nice write-up uh, from, this, I'm looking on, it's a 2017 article by Jeb Dunnick. Yeah. On you. And Uh-oh. really well done. Yeah, you know, Jeb's great. I think Jeb has been such a... Uh, you know, when we lost Bob, we were nervous, but I think Lisa's been fantastic. I think um, Antonio's been fantastic, and I think Jeb. They're all three of them are really, really great for what they do um, and what they're sort of aimed for. Is but I think they're all different people. I think Jeb sort of has the Bob mantra of just sort of this love bigger than life, loves wines, and if he loves the wines, he's going to give a big score, and he's going to be that. Lisa is so meticulous in tasting. She's so spot on. I mean, master, I think master saw and a master wine, or master wine, so she's tasted everything. And then Antonio is just so passionate, you know, coming from, you know, he's a guitar player at Berkeley, then he's, you know, finance. He sees everything that way and loves Italian wine, so I think he loves that, the model of smaller, handmade Italian wines. So all three of them are really interesting to, to meet with, and I loved, I'm lucky enough to get to sit with all three of them, and they're all fun people to talk to. It's a great time you know and I think for for the consumer to find to find your voice and James Molesworth taking over California and I've had a chance to meet with him a couple times he's great too it's a fun time I mean I really think 
you know, being, you know, I think you could say this, being, being, um, Brian, you know, being in the restaurant business, people now don't really care about, scores are great, you want them, but I think people sort of let go, is like, just tell me about a great wine, I want, I'm interested in that, and so I think that hold over it is gone, and the worst thing I think we can do is, is, is what we did in the 80s and 90s, is once you got a good score, you sent out shelf talkers and talked about the scores, now I think it's just, it's just another great thing that they see what you're doing is great, but also we, we feel what we're doing is great, so don't give the power to anybody, so... Now, the thing that I've, you know, we've, we've started to sort of do some of that, you know, submitting wines and sat with Jeb and sent wines to Jeb and, um, you know, a couple other folks. Galoni. Galoni's terrifying. Uh, he's, he he's is terrifying. very intense. He's so, he's so intense. But, uh, you know, having these professionals who all they do is taste these wines all day long, taste yeah. wines from all over the world and write about them. Having them sit down and, and taste your wine and talk to you about it and, and then write about it. Not, you know, the, the scores are great, but having them write about it and, and evaluate it from their perspective um, has been so the most valuable piece of it for me. There's uh, so having much, them, yeah. their descriptions and their, like, perspective on it. I don't know. That's, that's what I find the most interesting. There's so much more value in their comments than yeah. there is in the number. And that's very know? true. I mean, you know, sometimes a, a 91-point wine reads like it's a 97-point wine. And it is funny buying wines in the secondary market, um, especially older wines. If the wines got huge scores, they're more expensive. But, you know, people, oh, sometimes a lot of those wines that didn't get the 900 points or the 99 or 98 points. I mean, I remember the first score that Bob Parker ever gave 100 points to was the 85 Groth Reserve. He didn't give another one of those until 92 to uh, on was the Maya. And so... You know, there's a, there's an era that wasn't 100 points. So people are like, oh, they must not be any good wines, which is complete and utter lunacy. I mean, come on. Between 85 and 92, I think there were some nice wines made. <laughs> so, you know, and so I think you can really find a lot of great wines in that era. Drought um, years, actually, yeah. right? 85 to 92. There's some um, nice, some nice. I yeah, probably more closer to drought. Not yeah. 88. 88 was a rainy year. Okay. I remember I had to play football and, and and we had to practice in mud every day. So <laughs> I remember that. And you know, up downs and mud is not a fun thing. Um, but yeah, so I think that that's kind of interesting. But I really meeting with them and talking to them and understanding what they're thinking about. But what it really does do is, you know, I think it's so much better now. And I think Bob would say this too. I mean, Robert Parker would say this. Um, back when it was just him and Spectator, I think it's. I think he was really would be excited. Like he would always say, "I'm just doing what I like. I don't, you know, I'm not worried about anything else." But I think he would say that the fact that there's so many good reviewers now. There's a lot of good people that are just doing stuff like I Wine Report on just on on Instagram now. They're doing stuff that are just all virtual. Doug Weiser, I mean, Doug Wilder, sorry, and just doing fun stuff that I really enjoy meeting with as well. I mean, there's so many good voices now. And again, find the people you identify with. That's what's so yeah, much that's fun. That's exactly what it is. Find, and it's not just. Their, you identify with their palate. Now you have this access to at least the part of their life that they're showing you through social media and through the whole deal that, you know, and the way they write about it, that you find people that you identify with personally in their life. and, and Absolutely. Their, for their better or for worse. Right. I mean, social media has both got good and bad aspects to it. So, Well, I'm, I'm excited for the Patria Wine uh playlists and and what what you're playing in the winery to get you going in the um, morning you know, which you know that happens during harvest i've talked about this a lot you know it used to be uh and bart can agree to this this used to be 70s rock you know it was a ton of led zeppelin aerosmith uh now it's all it's all hip-hop man it's tons of hip-hop now it's a lot of tribe called quest a lot of beastie boys 
uh, Public Enemy. And then when the younger guys get on, it's a lot of e, you know E40. He loves E40. One of my assistants loves E40. Um, <laughs> 40 Water shout out. Yeah. So I mean stuff like that. So there's a lot of hip hop. Not a lot of house music. I thought we get a little more dance music, but we don't. A lot of that could be dangerous. Yeah, a lot, know, lot, 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 lot of heavy metal. A lot, a lot of Metallica. A lot of Guns N' Roses, uh, Black Crows, stuff like that. I mean, it's all over the board. I tend to let the guys pick because you know they're the ones doing the hard, hard work, and I'm sort of sitting there. But everyone's supposed to say, "I'm, I'm done with this. I can't hear this anymore. I cannot." There, there is a rule. I know you're not going to be happy with this, and probably going to cut me out of this whole thing. But I know more than one winery that has a no Grateful Dead rule during harvest. <laughs> so the no Grateful Dead rule, because you just don't listen to the dead during harvest. There's well, no there's dead a, rule. There could be a focus. No issue. dead and no there, reggae. There no dead and no a reggae. Focus issue there. Yeah. yeah no well, dead things no start moving a little slower. Right. You know. Yeah. I mean, no dead, no reggae, and, and no smoke breaks, and no country, <laughs> and no country music. You know, not a lot of country music. Wait, Chris Stapleton's okay. You know, uh, Sturgill's okay, but right. you know, old and older stuff's okay, but no, no modern, no modern stuff. <laughs> so, but no, I mean, it's funny. I mean, again, harvest is like a pirate ship, man. You see, I think Bart, you could agree. You, I've seen things during harvest that people have done. I just that's like, it's an amazing time. I've done things during. Yeah, harvest, oh, I, know, I, right I know, me too. I know, me too. I didn't know that forklift can fit through there. You know, it's one of those type <laughs> of situations. It looked like it fit. You know, if you if you had a list of all the great cut quotes from Harvest, it, it just it, it would fill a book and people would be dying. Just you and know, fired probably. Fired. Oh <laughs> yeah, just just so it's just. I, I think it's the it's the only business I've ever worked in. You know, I've done some some jobs while I was going to college, but to get a paycheck to pay for the roof over my head, the wine business is the only thing I've ever done, and I would never change it. I love this business, the the characters of it all, the just to, just sort of people come into your life and out of your life. You know, you work, you know people for five or seven years, and then they just maybe change their life, and want to do something completely different. It was just fun for them for a moment. And remember that guy? Yeah, I totally remember that guy. Yeah, well, and yeah. the interns, right? The, Those, oh, the interns are unbelievable. You know. I mean, it's. It is a motley crew. We now have taken to one of my team that, they, that we've told that all of our interns that they're not allowed to talk to me since I'm winemaker of the year and not allowed to talk to me or look me in the eye. <laughs> there you so, go. So, but that's only if they're Perfect. Jeff Dunnock fans, yeah, right? Yeah, I know. So, I know it's just, I mean, you like to screw with people most we can. It just, yeah. It's just that's what you do. I mean, I, and, I, I, and we often tell them, you know, if Tony talk, if Tony's not talk, if Tony's not talking to you, it means he likes you. You know, if he doesn't, if he's not talking to him, he doesn't like you. So we joke with people, you know, the, the, the go find a, go find the host stretcher, you know, stuff like that, you know, go ask for a bucket of holes, you know, and go, you go around the whole winery and make them do it. And then you give them lunch afterwards, but you treat them well. We try to, we drink really well. Like an Amici, we drink really well at lunches. You know, we'll bring white burgundies and, and, lot, and a lot of bubbles and stuff to have fun. You guys, these people don't have a lot of money. So you open up some nice older wines for them and let them have fun and sort of say, this is what we do it for, man. I mean, and I think the best reward in the end is, is when you see your wine, whether, whatever wine you've crafted even if you're an intern on a table somewhere like i helped make that i actually bought some 93 hess collections i helped make it and then i said i I helped make this probably why it's not very good but i helped make (laughs) this so you know i think that's the fun thing about it so tony what's going on at hourglass roofs being you know we're rebuilding um unfortunately we were hoping to make harvest make make the harvest window this year you know with with everything so delayed like we were talking about earlier you can't get materials materials are double priced people aren't working um you know so you're having to custom crush somewhere yeah else. we're doing it we're gonna do it in a bottle but we're gonna move the wines up there afterwards the nice thing about in bottle is our assistant winemaker has his own office there so they've been really kind they've done a great job. You know, the two tons they've seen they did a wonderful job right. you know so but we think we're really excited about that and at least we have a home and then we're already finishing up the permit process and hourglass was such a unique it is setup. is it it's is gonna stay somewhat gonna be that way? well the hard part is that we lost the old old hunting house which is you know from the 1850s that was hard to lose and and like just said on another podcast how do you replace almost 160 or 100 and you know yeah 170 years of 
of um, age. You know, you don't. And so how do you design something that still is unique and one of a kind, but it's not, it's not new and it's not sterile. So, the, you know, his, you know, he's the one thing, if I, I trust anybody, it's Jeff, he's a really creative guy. And his wife's very creative, Carolyn and, and all of the architect, they'll figure out something, but the, the winery roof will be similar. Uh, we were acting, putting more shade up there and then we're just sort of changing the tank configuration. Other than that, it's going to be very similar. So yeah. And the, we'll get tiles that don't melt this time. Cause we, <laughs> cause we assumed that that would happen. The wine so. that was had to, you had to leave because of the red tag and yeah. the roof falling. Is it still? That's a great there? question. No, it was there till April because it was an, we were dealing with the insurance and trying to get the roof understanding and how to get it taken down. It was crazy, and so we had wine on skins until April. And what was that like? Some of them smelled, I mean, like sickly. Like I, if you if you even tried to put that in your mouth, you would have probably just gagged. It was so bad. It was like, I mean, and some of them. I mean, I thought I think we lost one bin to fruit flies. I think they just carried it away. Like it was gone one day. I don't know where that went. I don't know where that went. Um, uh, yeah, it was interesting. Some of them were actually strangely. Wine is an amazing thing. This is why it's such an amazing beverage. Some of them were tasteable. I mean, this, you're talking, there was no heat or cooling on these tanks from September 27th, the day the fire hit, September 27th to April. Eight months. On the skins. Yeah. And we were jokingly said, well, if we open the door, I wonder if the skin's dissolved. I don't know. You know, it's just one of these, all these different answers. But there was one tank of white wine that never was you know, heated or cooled, and we tasted it, and it was actually. Uh, it was good. I mean, it hadn't been sitting there. I mean, it was like, well, I don't know if it's salvageable. I, I don't think we could sell this, but, I mean, it wasn't bad. It was just interesting how wines age. I mean, everything at that winery we bought was, was you know, everything that came to the winery, we, we had high hopes for. We thought we were really going to make great wine from that. And, I think, and you know, the sad thing is some stuff that was pressed in a tank, like we had some wonderful Syrah from Hudson, was fantastic. Um, I thought we did. So... You know, say la vie, it's one vintage. Um, no one was killed. No one was hurt. That's that's what you look at. Um, that's all we have to look at. You know, and someone said, well, how's it feeling? Oh, you know, we don't look backwards anymore. We look forwards, and we're excited. I mean, it gives – to look at – take a turn of negative into a positive really quickly. Um, it gives us opportunity to reset and look at where we want to go for the next 10, 20 years. The wine business, I think, is different for all of us now than it was before COVID. And understanding that, that everybody that works at Hourglass, this is their f- only source of income. So this is what we ch- the business we've chose to, chosen to do for the rest of our lives. So we're going to take the lumps, take the good times and the bad. i got so, one more question. Sure. This morning the Press Democrat um, issued a, a, a story about more uh, water restrictions. Yeah. And how it's, oh, they're bare bones at the moment. Um, since harvest is coming up within the next week or so, has it just ceased to be a problem at the moment for water usage? In the well, it's funny. I think you know. I, I actually talked about this to another reporter recently. Is that they're like, well, you know, they're not going to be able to plant Cabernet anymore in, in Napa Valley. What do you think of that? I go, well, if we don't have water, we're not going to plant anything. So let's just talk about the water usage yeah. and issues first. I think we have to become a lot more cognizant on how we use water and how what a valuable commodity is. I think for so many years, you leave, you leave your sink running while you're doing dishes. You, leave, you, know, you turn the shower on and you walk around the house cleaning up your house, then you hop in the shower. Stuff like that. And then especially in farming, uh, to become more of, of deficit irrigating. You know, to understand how water, you just, don't turn the, you just don't turn the water on and off. To be more careful to understand it. I also think wineries need to learn about cisterning. 
um, you know, cisterning of water, saving water in the rainy seasons, gray water usage, which is, you know, a Cade winery was a lead certified winery, Plump Jack that I, we, I worked at. They were, they were our lead certified gold. Part of the gold aspect of lead build out was gray water usage. And we use gray water to, to water all the plants. And yeah, you get a little weird smell every once in a while if, if the nitrogen level got too high, but for the most part, the plants flourished. You had gray water, it's water you couldn't use anyway. Right. And it worked really well, but all these things should be incorporated in. But it does go back to the state. I think at some point the state should be giving tax credits for water usage. If if you if you're putting these systems in, you should get tax credits. If you're putting in solar power, you should be getting tax credits. If you're putting in wind, you should be getting tax. Credits. Anything that's helping the environment, you should be rewarded for. You know, and I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. I mean, no, it's, sorry it's at all. Your, well, some people say, well, that's that's, that, that, that's a luxury because not everybody can afford that, and I do agree. But the reality is, if you can't afford it. There should be, you know, people aren't going to do it if, if they aren't incentivized to do so. The, only the best people will do it. If your excuse not to do something in your winery yeah. is that you can't afford it, you're in, yeah. you're in the probably wrong, in the wrong business. Again, back to the uh, deck chair on the Titanic idea, yeah. you know. And so I always say there's 20% of the people that will do good no matter what. There's 20% of the people that will do bad no matter what. And 60% of the people just need a push, you know. And so I think that if, this, if, the, if the state could work with us. That, add, it, I mean, that adds up. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah anyway, I'm Italian. So well, you know, the, the leaders are always the ones, you know, the pioneers. They're, they're footing the cost for everybody yeah. else. But look, it's something that has to be done. Which yeah, I mean, is ridiculous. Again, I mean, gone are the days where we can just, just do water, you know. And the funny thing is, is that um, we have more water now in the ground at Hourglass Blue Line because of the, of the damage the fires caused behind us with the Calasoga Ranch and so forth. But we thought, oh, we, our wells would be great. But, you know, water's a funny thing. I mean, how it flows under the ground, no one really knows how much is down there. We have estimates, you know. And But yet I said, well, would we have more water? And the guy's like, not really, because I think it could be on a different finger of the aquifer. And it's completely different water coming from a different spot to for Fisher. So no one really knows. So what year was the quake in Napa during harvest? Uh, 14. 14. 14. Yeah. So in 14 at Lassiter, after that earthquake, one of the – place in the creek that runs mm -hmm. through um the property was dry juicy creek juicy creek yeah. no no the other one uh uh i'm sorry i'm drawing a blank the one that runs by the train yeah. line um it started flowing yeah we had that and, happen and in Napa, was, right by yeah. in oakville yeah it was dry and then the earthquake hit and all of a sudden started flowing so yeah and then the funny thing is someone else said that if you draw if you if you drill a will well right next to another well you would think that that's going to hurt your water. In actuality, one of the hydrologists said, no, it's actually better because the pressure, out of pressure, is pushing more water out of the ground. I go, oh, okay, I, that doesn't make any sense. I guess so. I mean, hey, I'm not a hydrologist. That sounds good to me, you know, but, um, you know, water is just a weird thing. But I do think the way we use it has to change, you know, especially, I don't understand, we, you know, most winters other than last winter, we do get a, we do get quite a bit of rain here, 30 to 40 inches. So if we can cistern some of that and put it into tanks, at least use it somehow in your household as maybe, you know, just toilet water, you know, or, or just something, or, you know, or, or especially for irrigation in your house, planting gardens, and so forth. So, but I, one thing I was told, you know, in Calistoga, I had a well when I first moved here, and like, well, do you want to cap your well? And I talked to them, like, don't ever cap your well. Don't ever cap your well. Keep your well forever. That's that's and now I'm sure that house is lucky we didn't do it. It costs about two thousand dollars a year to keep a well up and running, and because you're not, you know, hopefully it's not leaching anything and so forth. But I'm now I'm sure they're happy they have it. Yeah, so. that's why all these wineries that have uh, water rights and creeks, you know, even though those those systems may look like they don't work, they have them there because if they do need them, yeah, because you give them up and then yeah. you're never getting them back. And we do too. I mean, we, I mean, our glass that's where we get our water. We fill our pond from the creek water, and then we have then we have to go to wells. And so water rights will be the next big fight. And that's a dirty secret right now about down, you know, 
in the, in the Central Valley with all the pistachio growers, it's really a water play. I mean, it's just, you know, they don't, you know, read the articles about it and, and you know, Nestle owning, they bottle their water yeah. down there. It's like, uh, wait, you put bottled water here and you sell it all over the world? You know, maybe we can use some of this water. So it's going to be very interesting, but water comes first, and I think that's where it starts. Brian, you took me to Trouchard uh, one time, and they couldn't drill a well there because everything came up salinity. Yeah. And uh, so they had two nice reservoirs and they were capturing all of their usage from the rain they just yeah. they didn't get anything out of the ground yeah no, that's the funny thing carneros is one of those places that there's not a lot of groundwater people struggle to grow stuff down there and it's, there's certain areas i don't know about sonoma valley as well as you guys would but i do know eastern hills of napa from about Lee north has struggled with water it's, it's a very like lark me lane in that area it's it's water's very rare they're very hard to get very scarce so it kind of depends on where you are in Sonoma. Just yeah. and then it's that same thing. It doesn't just because you're, um, you know, on the valley floor doesn't mean you're necessarily going to yeah. have a lot of water. Yeah. And just because you're on the top of a giant pile of rocks, and the best <laughs> most <Yeah>. bountiful <laughs> water we have is you know in the Mayacamas Mountains. Yeah. It makes no sense like from a, you know, if you just like basic physics but when you talk about the hydrology of it and the way that those creeks started flowing in in 2014 after an earthquake in the middle of august yeah, you fractured all that rock all that, all just, that, all that there's lava a flow. lot of water in those rocks yeah down i know the bottom it's of those cracks. Thing, remember when we drilled the well at, at plump jack we drilled a new well and we went down to 650 feet but it's pure clean water and yeah. because of all of that rock it's just filled through that rock and it's all that basalt that just flowed like i almost said they went down like cake frosting another layer of cake frosting another cake frosting and they would just drill, 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 and they finally hit through it, and then they got water, but the water was crystal clear. I mean, they're saying, this is almost, you don't even almost need to, I mean, within reason, you don't need to treat this, you know, but they're going to soften it a bit, and they're going to make sure it's dev so, you know, you don't get Yeah, uh, I met a guy who owns a small vineyard at his house just past Rossi Ranch, and uh, he was talking about water, and I said, how's your water? And he says, oh, we have an artesian well. He goes, it's crazy how much water we have. Yeah. You know, there's a there's a vineyard I know six hundred you know six hundred you know six hundred gallons per minute up on Hal Mountain, which is like really hard to do. You know, it's just you know it's just like what he goes, yeah, well, you know, so it's just like right. seems okay. like a lot when they want you to use fifty five gallons a day max. Now, yeah, you yeah. know, well, 55, I, that's 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 tough. That's really tough. You know, and so we'll see how it goes. You know, luckily, you know where I am, uh, we still haven't got that severe yet because I'm on a different washer. It's going to go there. I mean. Yeah. You you look at you know look at look at lakes. I mean you can't you can't oh, they, see them, is it? Uh, you know? They just said that today Lake Mead, which is, was yeah. the largest reservoir in the country, and it's bone dry at the moment. Yeah, that's, it's a, the first it. restrictions on the yeah. Colorado River that they've ever that they've ever had on water out of the Colorado. So and that, that goes all the just, way down to, not just to Mexico, California. Right? Well, it, it used did. To, it, <laughs> that's been a long time. Yeah, that's been decades yeah. since it went. Yeah. Uh, the book uh, Cadillac Ranch. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Very good. So yeah, that's yeah. So. Alright. Should we do one more shout out on how you uh, find how you find Patria? Patria. Wines.com. Patria. Yeah. Patriawines.com. Still know um, how to say. Definitely it. some high end retailers, restaurants. Um, it'll be released in the next month or so. So hop on the mailing list if you'd like to, and um, we'll get you some wine. So cool. And at Patrio Wine, Patrio Wine on Instagram. Patrio Wines, yeah. PatrioWines.com. PatrioWines.com. Yep. Awesome. Any other uh, shout? We should do a little quick shout out to uh, Angelo Cosimo, who was yes. here just a few minutes ago. Uh, Hospice Daron Auction Lot Winter Tour in Sonoma. Oh, that's fantastic! Um, I love it. Great, great, great event. You, everybody out listening, got to get there. Talk about one of the best, most hospitable, fun events. Right. 
I mean, you won't leave sober, but you'll have a good time. Christmas, Sorry. New Year's, birthday, <laughs> Valentine's Day, all rolled into one for me. It is. And for, just you love Rhone wines. Yeah. What a, another reminder that, he, you know, one of the world's revered Cabernet makers just wants to go and drink Grenache in a, <laughs> in a, in a barn in Paso with the rest of us. Grenache, man. I mean, yeah. look, I mean, you got to love Grenache. It's like, it's like, it's like, it's like, it's like uh, Pinot Noir for yeah, exactly. grown-ups. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, no, no, I shouldn't say that. Yeah, no, that's you a, did. No, you yeah did. I did, I did. So, but no, it's fine. I, look, we all love good wine. But thanks, God, for guys, for having me. Tell yeah. your dad I said hello. I will. Um, he'll really he, grump at, he'll growl, growl at me. Yeah, let's say something. Okay. Yeah. Hey, tell him to call, call me. So, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> it. And save some wine for him. So, we'll save, we'll save a little. Thank you for so bringing that you. bottle, Tony. Appreciate it's it. It's not a problem. Uh, thanks, another shout out to Rob Wildman, who sent me a Jerry Garcia bobblehead from a Cincinnati Reds game. I know he'll listen on his walk next on Saturday morning. So thanks, Rob. All right, Anything everybody. Else? Bye, guys. Thanks for listening. Street World next week.